started a series last week that uh, I think God has been dealing with me on for uh, maybe about six months. And it may seem like a, a strange question to be asking, but, uh, but the question was basically, why church? I mean, it's kind of shoot yourself in the foot if you're the pastor of a church and you're asking, why church? Why bother with it? Why all of the energy that we put into it? Is it really that important? Is it really that valuable? Does it really contribute in, in, to a way that is, uh, that is life-giving uh, and not life-taking? Um, it really did a lot of soul-searching in how I, how I come to the table, uh, how I come to this table week after week, day after day. Uh, and so if this message series is not for anybody but me, then please just let me... Let me uh, well, expound on my on my own soul's journey, and maybe it will mean something to you in that process uh, of, of 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 thinking, and maybe it will even bring a, a new and, and fresh thought to your heart and mind about just why church and why bother with it, and what's its value in the big scheme of things. And I think one thing that I come away from my little pilgrimage with. Is, the, is, this, is this mantra that I mentioned last week, and I think I'll mention it throughout this series, because I really want us to really put our arms around it and embrace it and really it become our own, your, your own mantra as well. And that is this, that the greatest gift that we could possibly give a community is to plant a church. There's no other organization that holistically can bless a community body, mind, and spirit than a church. Now you think about it. You Send me an email. Send me a note anonymously if you don't want to know your name. But, but let me know. If you can think of an organization, uh, uh, something that's established, something that can bless a community in such a holistic fashion whenever it's operating truly as a church. Now I'm not saying every church is blessing every community. I think they're having a, some churches are having a hard enough time just blessing themselves, keeping themselves going. But, I mean, a true church that is truly, I think, functioning in a healthy capacity is really the greatest blessing that we could give a community. And the church was not man's invention. It was God's initiative. It was God's idea. It was not man's idea. We're just hopefully not messing up His, his initiation and His work and what He wants to do through the church. Because as we talked about last week, Christ loves His church. He, he leads His church. He sacrifices for His church. He, he desires His church. He calls His church to Himself. In, in Revelation, when, when, when God is knocking on the door, He's knocking on the door of the church, wanting to come into the church and be a part of the church. So he, he's, he's desiring to be in fellowship with the church. The church is important in the grand scheme of God's economy. And Jim Cimbala, who's the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in in, uh, in, in Brooklyn, obviously. Uh, and this is the statement in one of his books, The Church God Blesses. He says, It is evident that nothing else is more important to the Lord than the spiritual state of the local churches that bear His name. There's nothing more important than the spiritual state of the churches that bear His name. Now, that to me says that that needs to be a priority. Now, I have to admit, coming into this series, I'm thinking, okay, the talking about the church is not the most sexy topic out there, okay? 
It's not just fun topic maybe for some because again, we have maybe this kind of dumbed down view of what a church is supposed to be. But maybe if we understood the church as it was intended to be, as God desires it to be, maybe then we could we can understand the, the passion behind God and how what's the quality of the church. And so much of it, we measure it by the size of the, the staff or the building or the crosses or how many cars are in the parking lot or you know how cutting edge is the church and are they contemporary or the traditional or the blended and you know is that really how and for churches for so many years they've had basically four B's. Now you don't know this maybe on your side of the where you're at, but on this side of the fence of being a pastor, there's four basic B's that you measure the, the quality of the church, and it's buildings, budgets, baptisms, and butts. You know, and it's how many butts you have in the seat, and it's how many how big are your buildings, and, 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 and all these different baptisms and budgets, and, and if you can measure that, and then, then you know the quality and the value of that church. And, and I want to say... Throw that out. Now, granted, measuring some of those things are valuable. But that's not everything. But for some, that's the end all. It's how big are those areas? How many are those areas? How can we measure those areas? And I want to say it's not how big is our army. Not how big is our audience. But what is the quality of our army? Because it's not my desire to just raise up a big audience here. I want to see an army. I want to see a movement, not a machine. I want to see something that, that God's in intricately all throughout our lives and in, working in our hearts and, and families and businesses and, and small groups. and what I mean, that God is working. That, I think, how do you measure that? And I think maybe there's not of the four B's questions, but maybe there's one question. Maybe this one question could help us if we could unpack it a little bit. If we could answer this question, then maybe we might begin to be understanding what is the value of this church. And here's the question. What kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me? Maybe it's not in some kind of monetary numeric number that we're going to determine the value of our church. But maybe it's in the simple question, what kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me? If, if the quality of my giving was the quality of everybody's giving in the church, what would that look like? If the quality of my prayer life was the quality of all the prayer life, what would this church, how would our prayer life be? If the quality of our time in God's Word was and how, how we live it out in our day-to-day life was measured by my life alone and everybody was living off of my standard, then what kind of church would this church be? And maybe it's not looking at spreadsheets and measuring square footage of building that we need to be looking at, but we actually need to hold in our hand a mirror. And that mirror is asking us that question, what kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me? And you take the different components and the different disciplines of the Christian faith, and what would that look like? Take your Bibles, be finding the book of Ephesians, Acts. And Acts is a great book to study if you want to understand the beginnings of the church and how the first church operated. Now, I'll tell you this. The first church was not the perfect church. Now, we might look at it as the prototype, the beginning of it all, but they had problems. And you read through the book of Acts, you'll see some of the problems that they had. 
But they had some things that were going for them, and God was really working with them. The Holy Spirit was empowering them, and lives were being changed, and it was, it was, it was happening. And I, you know, but it's not a perfect church. And I, I guess I, I, I've somehow come through my faith journey and realized that I need to quit looking for a perfect church. I need to quit striving to be that perfect pastor. What I do need to be is I do need to be healthy. I do need to be well-rounded. I do need to have some qualities about my life that make me sustainable and healthy and growing and vibrant in my life. That is what I need to be, is healthy, not perfect. Because perfect, I'll never be this side of heaven. And there's no perfect church anywhere in the Bible, so let's stop it. But let's do look at what healthy looks like. Let's do kind of get a picture of that. And I think if we get a picture of that, then we might be on our way. So in the book of Acts, chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 32. Because here's where the first church is just kind of fleshing out their life. And they're just coming together. I mean, there's there's 3,000 believers. So, I mean, they're they're going. They've got a... They've got the critical mass to keep going, obviously, but they, they're going, and as they're going, what are, what are they looking like? What, what are they feeling like? What's the smell of the place? When you got around these early believers, what was that like? And in verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but, every, but had everything... In common. Now, some have manipulated that verse to promote communism, but I want to call it communism. There was nothing that they really had that they weren't willing to give up if they saw a brother in need. It was not promoting communism. It was promoting more of a, hey, if you have a need and I can meet that need, I'm going to be on, on, that, on that baby. All right, verse 33, And the great power of the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's the centrality of their message. And a great grace was upon them all. In verse 34, there, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each one as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas. I'm going to call him Barney throughout the rest of the time. So we got Barney here, in, which his name means son of encouragement, a Levite, native of Cyprus. He sold a field and it belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? I want you to clear your minds. I want you to ask yourself the question that I asked earlier, and I'll ask at the end. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to then teach you from that. What kind of church would Grace Point be if every member prayed, gave, served, loved, forgave like me? Father, would you would you show us in a mirror of our soul and our spirits today who we are? Would you show us, Lord, who we're not? Would you, Lord, help us to see who you want us to be?
And Father, anything that's obstructing that path from who we are and who we're not to who You want us to be, would You also help us to begin to remove it out of our life? Lord, we love You and we thank You for a body of believers that comes together week after week in three gatherings that we call Grace Point Church, that, Father, we would be a beautiful, beautiful bride for You. Healthy, healthy, healthy. Lord, we thank You for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today, this may be some things that I share with you that may be a little bit hard to swallow. It may seem a little bit of a high bar. But again, if there's anything obstructing from where you are to where God wants you, please be willing to lay that on the altar today and be willing to say, God, it's not what you want, so I'm ready to move, I'm ready to change. And I think as I look at this passage and I kind of break it apart myself, I see at least... uh, Three marks of a healthy church. Now, these are not everything there is to know about being a healthy church. And if we do these three things, then everything is done. But I will say this. That if we have these three qualities a part of us, a part of you, a part of me, and every one of us will identify that I want these three marks a part of me making up who I am, that I think that we can be well on our way to doing the many other things that God wants us to do. But if we don't get these three things down and we try to do the other task, purposes that God has called us to do, then I think we're doing them out of line and out of kelter. And we need to get on track. And so I want to be healthy. The very first quality or a mark of a healthy body is that there's a unified body of believers. Alright? They're, 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 they're singing the same song. I'm not saying they all look the same. In fact, I am against... I'm against uh, uh, trying to create clones here. I don't like that. I don't think that's what God intended it to be. And I'm not even saying that we're always going to agree about everything, but that we will be unified. You take Lori and I's relationship. We don't agree on everything, but we are still one. We are still connected. We are still going in the same direction. Now, we we might zig and zag at different ways at different times, and we might learn to disagree and uh, agree to disagree on some things, but we are all going in the same direction. I am not asking, and I don't think the Word of God is asking for us to just be complacent or compliant here. But He is calling us, giving us a great example of agreement. How can two walk together? It's been a a life verse for Lori and I. Amos 3.30, says, It says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? How can we think that we're going to be going in the same direction if we are not on the same page? Now notice again in this verse what he said right off the bat, now the full number, the full number, all of them together, of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were were together in, in, in a unified fashion to the very core. They might look different, dress different, act different, come from different origins and different worldviews and different, different perspectives. He's not calling for compliance here, but they were unified. Rick Warren said like this, he's, God expects unity, not uniformity. We can walk arm in arm without seeing eye to eye. 
And I think that's a great statement. That we can be a bit different in some of our ways, but we must come together under some unified elements. There's a Latin phrase that's on every American coin. And I'll try to speak Latin for a moment. Pluribus unum. Or unum. And it means, it's on every one of our coins, and it means this, out of many, one. We as a nation are made up of many, but we are also one. Even the word university means to find unity in diversity. Don't confuse compliance here. We're not striving for compliance. There are some things, though, that I think that we might come together on. There are some things that we must be united on, as he, as he points out here, one heart, one soul. And I think one of those is that we must be unified on what we believe and how we live. That is one of the things that we've got to understand about each other and be unified on. But I notice I didn't just say what we believe, because I think we've been really confused about that in some denominational circles, that we might sign off on a doctrinal statement, but our life does not match up to it. Take, for example, any, any doctrine in Scripture, you just take any doctrine in Scripture, how well are you living it out? Any teaching, how well are you living it out? Even the other day, I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. And it starts defining what love is. Love is patient, love is kind, all this kind of stuff. And I learned this little practice that you, what you need to do is you need to go through there and insert your name in there. So Mike is patient, Mike is... You know, I could have told you. I could have parsed the verbs and declined the nouns of that verse. I could have given you all the doctrinal, doctrinal elements of that verse. But literally, when I started to insert my name in that verse, I had to stop reading. Because Mike isn't patient. And I didn't even want to go to kind. I, I, I failed the first question. So... Let's not talk today about what we believe if we're not willing to live it. Don't talk about all the doctrines and the classes that you know if you aren't living it. So we've got to become unified about what we believe, believe to the point of living. But here's another thing that I think we must be unified on, and that's unified on where we are going. Notice in verse 44 he said, uh, in, in chapter 2, if you skip back to chapter 2, because in chapter 2 you also see the early church functioning very much in, in one accord. Chapter 2, uh, verse 44, he says, And they all believed and were together and had all things common. They were of, again, heart, soul. They were, they were tracking together. They were on the same course. I, 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 I would say that in a church body, that is not unified and moving in the same direction. What we are doing when we are not moving in the same direction, we start in this tug of war, pulling against one another. And all of that does is it stops us in our tracks. And actually what it will end up doing is creating a sideways energy instead of forward progress. I would say this to you, and I say this as much love and compassion as I can, especially those who are here visiting Grace Point maybe for the first time, and you're looking for that church home, you need to find a church that you can unify around the vision and the direction of that church. Life is too short and eternity is too long to be a part of a body that you can't be there, heart, soul. Be a part of it. And be in on it. Don't, don't create sideways energy. 
Don't create the murmuring or the complaining. Create the positive future direction. And be on board and move forward. You think about Eisenhower when he took over the troops in Europe to lead a, the Allied forces against the Nazi raids. And here he is, the Americans are coming in late into the battle. And as, he comes, as we come in late into the battle, the reporters were asking him, how do you, Eisenhower, believe you're going to be able to lead these allied forces of different languages and ethnicities and, and beliefs of how the war should be fought in, in one? How are you going to do this? This is what Eisenhower said to the reporters. He said, sir, it is, not, it is one team or we lose. And we have to be one team. We have to be one church moving united together in one direction, not multiple directions. So please find that body of believers that you can unify around, be with, live out the teachings. Don't just believe them. Don't just regurgitate them. Live them out. The church, in the healthy church, was unified heart and soul. Rick Warren said it like this, the world is one when the church is one. Let's not be about creating a sideways energy. I also want to point out another thing about this early church. And there was a level of generosity in this church that I call 3G generosity. They were generous, gregarious, and they were giving in their generosity. It's amazing if you look at this and, and unpack this, and there has been, there's been so much written about this, trying to understand, again, is it communism or is it whatever? Because you know what? Americans, we don't understand saying that my house can be your house. You, you need a car? I got a car. You need a car worse than I need a car. Here, here, I have my car. We don't understand that level of living. We don't understand that level of giving. But there was something about this early church that they were able to open themselves up in, in a way that was generous, in a way that was gregarious, and that word gregarious means unhindered, just, just, just free-flowing. And they were giving. They, they were able to give it out. Look at verse 34 again. He said, Therefore there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds that was sold. And laid it at the apostles' feet, and they distributed each one as any had need. That's amazing to live at such a standard like that. To live at such generosity like that. They had a compassionate congregation, a compassionate gathering of believers. And, and in case we just can't put our arms around it, what Luke does, who writes Acts, is he kind of gives us a couple examples. Now, not everybody in the early church was of the same disposition in their giving. Some would make pledges and give the appearance of giving and they weren't giving. They would just give the appearance of givers. But, but there's, a, there's another man and he, he gives us this example. He, he gives us an example of Barnabas in chapter 4 and we read that a few moments ago. And then, but he, then he gives us in chapter 5. And well, Let's not be careful not to just think chapter 5 is a totally different topic because what really he's doing is he's going right on in to the, to the next thing. And he talks about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And really, what, what you have to do if you're really studying Acts, you've got to read Acts chapter 4, and you've got to continue right on reading Acts chapter 5. 
Because what, what he does is he draws out this comparison. He says, this is what, what, what the real church in the healthy way was. Barnabas, this is how he gave. But this is Ananias and Sapphira and how they gave. And so you see this kind of comparison going, going on here. And so I want to draw out a couple of the comparisons, and you might even find others. So here's the first one. Is Barnabas, when he gave, it was all in. When Ananias and Sapphira gave, it was hold out. Again, let's read the stories and kind of you could you can see them for your, with, with your own eyes. Verse thirty-six, he said, now "There's Joseph who was called uh, by the apostle Barnabas, and which is means son of encouragement, a Levite, native of Cyprus." And then verse verse thirty-seven gives us the details. And he sold a field and it belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So here it is. He's got this track of land, and there's some needs around, and there's some needs in the church, and you know what, I've got land and you have needs. And so I tell you what, I don't need this land as much as you have needs over here. So I'm going to sell this land and I'm going to come over here and give the money to the apostles so they can distribute it. Now that was one example. That was the all-in example, if you will. But now let's look at Ananias and Sapphira, verse, or chapter 5, verse 1. And a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, similar to Barnabas here, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself. What a different perspective. All in or hold out? And I think when we, when we hold on to our money, I'm going to meddle here just a moment, okay? So let me meddle in your business. In your business, okay? We're, I'm going to meddle in your business for a moment. If your concept of your possessions and your money is, I gave my 10%, Mike, thank you so much, the other 90%, I can do with it whatever in the world I want. Really? Read again. Not only Hananias and Sapphira, read from Genesis to Revelation how God owns it all and we own nothing. And the only thing that we have is what God has given us. And so that really I don't hold 90% and God holds 10% of it. God holds 100% of it. And if he wants 100% of it, then by all means, title deed included, here it is, God. That's the perspective of this healthy church. Now, if we're of the persuasion that, okay, I gave my 10%, and that's all, well, no. No, that's not even biblical. That's the starting point, maybe, but it's not even biblical. Ananias and Sapphira had this idea that, okay, I'm going to give my little bit, but I'm going to keep for myself. There's one other characteristic that I see in this, in this story is that it was character building, but it was also character revealing. You know, if you study the book of Acts, and it's an amazing book to study, you'll find that Barnabas, though behind the scenes, is probably one of the most powerful, influential individuals in the early church. No, he wasn't the Apostle Paul. Though he trained the Apostle Paul, so get that. No, no, he wasn't one of the apostles. But by all means, he was one of the most influential leaders in the early church. His character was one that I want to help you become whatever. He's the encourager. He, I mean, he didn't even carry his own name, Joseph. They named him Encourager, Barney. This is the kind of guy that he was. His character is very revealing in his, in his giving and the way that he lived that out. 
But it's also very revealing. When you look at Ananias and Sapphira, look at verse 3 of chapter 5. But Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira, Why has Satan filled your heart? Wow. What a comparison. You've got two stories in the early church. One, generous, gregarious, giving. One, holding back. One that even Satan would say, Why would you let Satan fill your heart? Now, are are we saying they're unbelievers? No. We're just saying that even in the church, Satan can get a foothold. We're going to be talking about the adversary in a few weeks. And that is one of the things that has got to come out, is how even in the church, even with believers, that Satan can get a foothold, can get into the hearts of, as it happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Here's a life principle for you. Jot it down. A person giving says more about a person's spiritual health and growth than many other indicators. Our giving says more about our spiritual health than many other indicators. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Read it out loud with me. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You can even reverse that if you would. Where your heart is, there your treasure is. Where's your heart? Where's your treasure? Look at your treasure, you'll find your heart. If you're one of those who's a holdout giver, or are you one of those who's an all-in kind of giver? The sad reality is that in a church in America today, we have more holdouts than we have all-ins. You realize that 40% of church members who identify with a church, who say they're a Christian in a church, 40% of them don't give anything to their church. And only 4% tithe. That's sad. We have lost in our culture, in our Christian culture, the idea and the value and the beauty of giving. I think God blesses our life not to raise our standard of living, but maybe to raise our standard of giving. But where are we in that? Where are you in that? What kind of church would this church be if every member gave like me? Another life principle for you, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. I'm thankful that in July of this year, our church approved a ministry budget that was for the first time a little daunting. It's over a million dollars. That's scary. That's, that's in the sense a very awe thing to think about, that we might have a million dollar ministry budget. We unanimously approve that. It takes a unanimous work now of all of us to see that come to reality. Now, if you're, again, first time with us today, I don't speak on giving much, so give me the liberty today. Because I don't come to you apologetically about this. I come to you from a biblical, thoroughly biblical... Are we given like Ananias and Sapphira? Are we given like Barnabas? I challenge you that in this next year, as we did this million-dollar budget, it was the first year that we were able that we've been able, that we've done, that, that I've led the church to prioritize church planning. If you were to look at our budget, and it's all in our ministry report in the back, you would look at our budget and you would see some of the line items decreasing and some of the line items increasing astronomically. Those that increase the greatest amount in our budget this year 
is all monies going outside of our church and church planning. Either giving the infrastructure to it, giving the, the resources to it, it is not staying inside. And some of the greatest work that we could do in blessing the Northwest Arkansas community is what? Plant a church. So let's be about blessing Northwest Arkansas. Let's be about that. That's what we need to be about. And I think that's what God would call us to be about. But we have a challenge here. Million dollar budget, what's that look like in, our, in this? What that means, let me just give it to you, break it down into some simple numbers. That means about $22,000, $21,000 a week is what an offering would need to look like at Grace Point Church. Well, okay, we've been going at this now for a couple of weeks, since we, about a month and a half. Since we, since we got started, that, that, that would mean about $147,000 over the seven-week period is what we would need to have received. Well, what has that been for us? We received 118000 119000 of that. It's $28,000 difference. Now, this is not a campaign to raise money. Okay, let me stop any thought from going through your mind. And it's not, I'll also put this on there. It's not uncommon to come out of the summer months when you start your budget year in the summer to come out a little bit in the red. Okay, we're not in the red in our spending. Okay, but in our mission to start churches, to be blessings to the community, we have right now in our presence people ready to start churches among the Latinos. We have in our community right now. An amazing thing that I can't even go into. Among the Asian Indian community, the, already the beginnings of families meeting with Christians and sharing life on life. And it's like, it's like God's already bringing it. And you know what? I am like ready to call an Asian Indian church planner to, to, to be here and to start a work among them. But ministry costs. Or accomplishes nothing. We, you, me, we have all got to be in on this of meeting this need. I believe in two weeks we could erase $28,000 in the red. We, we could erase that in two weeks if we, in fact, and this is not even a campaign to do that. This is a call to be faithful to what God has called us to do, and that's to give. You say, where do I start, Mike? Start with 10%. It's a great beginning point. And what does that mean in your budget? It means we have to adjust some of our lifestyle. Don't you think it probably meant something and it felt Joseph or Barney felt something when he... Let's just make that commitment. We'll not even talk about beyond that. We'll not talk about giving whole tracts of land like Barnabas did. We'll not go there. Let's start with that. If everybody who's not tithing would tithe and everybody who's not giving would learn to give and be faithful giving... What would that mean and what could that do? I don't know. But I think we could maybe start the process now of starting the church among the Latinos and starting the work among the Asian Indians and starting that forward progress to other church plants so that we could bless our community. A church that's healthy, they're one. They're united. A church that's healthy, well, they're they're also generous. But also, they see needs and meet them. They look, they're in, their eyes, their ears, their hearts. They're, they're in the community. They're a part of the community and they're, they're about being answers in the community. 
when you look at that statement in verse 34, it says, there was not a needy person among them. That has been the verse all week long that I have constantly thought about. There was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. You mean to tell me that they had eyes and they could see the lonely? Do you have eyes to see the lonely? They had ears, they could hear the crying. They had hands, they could could help the broken. They had feet, they would go to the stranded. This is what we're supposed to be about. Need-meeting congregation, are we about that? Or as Jared brought out earlier, are we just about consuming? And what's in it for us? Did I like that? I don't like that, so I'm going to go somewhere else. There's an African proverb that says it like this. Empty stomachs have no ears. And I think if we would look at our community and we think, oh, we'll teach you how to follow Jesus, but we're not willing to step into their life and meet their needs, basic as they may be, we're missing it. And so I just thought, what about our congregation? What about Grace Point? Are we a need-meeting congregation? And I just began to just break into laughter. as I enjoy its laughter, not not the other kind of laughter. When I thought about Waltina Hanna and has she dreamed up this idea of an online swap meet. The online swap meet that would be able to us give gifts to, to people and it's called Need It, Got It. And she and Tim got together and they worked on this thing, the idea that you have kids clothes size 6 shoes and you're through with them. Put it online and then we'll find a family over here who's needing size 6 shoes and you can just meet up and swap meet. Just give it out. I thought, that's a need-meeting church. We're connecting needs and need-meters together. I thought about the verse. There was not a needy person among them. The Ellis's Body Life Group, when they got together and they went into somebody's yard in their neighborhood and, and their entire group came together and they cleaned up somebody else's yard, there was not a needy person among them. I learned this week about Anna Weirman and Carissa Weirman and Mary Bushlin and Emily Desler and Mallory and Tilly and Blake Bowen and Shelby Stacy and a few others whenever they went on Dulos tour and they went out to the uh, to uh, uh, Havenwood Apartments, a kind of a transitional house for single parents. And, and they went there and they blessed the kids and they poured their life into the kids. And that was Dulos tour back in the summer. But they're still going. Every Tuesday, going back in Bible study, taking care of them. There was not a needy person among them. Think of Jerry and Karen Watkins in our church who have belonged to, since being a part of Southern Baptist Disaster Relief Units, have helped to serve over 200,000 meals to victims of displaced from tornadoes and hurricanes and Katrina and Rita and Ivan, I mean, sounds like a phone directory, and Charles and Gustav and all these hurricanes that have come through. They've gone and given out food. There was not a needy person among them. I think about the Toto's group and the Phillips group and uh, the Grace Riders and the softball team and how there's a family that's kind of separated due to some circumstances that are, un- that are not good and the wife is pretty much left to raise the two children by herself over the next year or so and how these body life groups got together and went to their home and just poured into the yard, into the fence, into the house. Wherever there was a need, there was not a needy person among them. 
Think about Brian Morse, who was actually on our praise band, and he came down with cancer not too long ago, and just had to put things aside. And his body life group, the Marleys and the Cazelles and the group came together and recognized there's needs here, there's financial burdens on this on the Morse family, and and we need to help them. And so they got together. Everybody, just bring your junk, and we'll have a garage sale. They raised $2,200, and ever since April, that group has been taking meals to that family, the Morse family. As father and mother goes for treatments, the kids are taken care of with food still here. There's not a needy person among them. I learned this week of Josh Noren and Pete Finfrock and how they found out a family in the church was without a washer and a dryer, and they were spending $40 a week on on, on going to the laundromat to, to put coins in the machine to take care of their clothes, and they found a washer. And they've also found a dryer that hopefully will be delivered real soon. There was not a needy person among them. What kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me? Do you see the needs? Are you ready to meet them? Are you willing to give graciously, generously, gregariously? Are you one with us? If you're not one with us, find a place you can be one and be all there. And let's see God do great things through us.